0: I want to read you just a verse, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 12, so I will always remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, it is, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. I read that because this morning we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper and Every week we hear something thank you Charlie we heard something again this morning from the Lord about the Lord's supper because every week we participate in the Lord's supper but some of you might be new to this church some of you cannot remember what you were taught 20 years ago 30 years ago those of you who have been around for more than that how could you remember and so I thought let me just remind us and just unpack this quickly so and I think we need to have one of these lessons now and then because The Lord's Supper is something that we do every week, and it is so easy for it to shift just into a routine sip and dip, and we um, don't really come to grips with what it's about, and so I'll give an attempt at that uh, this morning. The Churches of Christ uh, traditionally are known for having Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Most churches don't. This is one church where you will have Lord's Supper every single Sunday, and I believe there's good biblical reasons for that. When we get together, this is one of the things that we uh, do for a reason. And I'm going to unpack that as we go on. But unfortunately, throughout history, uh, especially the churches of Christ, luckily not this one, and every church of Christ is different, have really had lots of debates and divisions about the Lord's Supper. You have, for example, um, the One-Cuppers. Who's ever heard of the One-Cuppers? The One-Cuppers say that the Lord's Supper needs to be drank out of one cup. Because Jesus took the cup, right? And Jesus probably did use one cup. But he took one cup, and therefore, we get a big cup. We start here with Jamie. We end off with Rolly. Sorry, Rolly, you're going to get the worst. It's like, And we just send it along. And it, it has to be one cup, because we're one family, right? We're one body. I've been to a church like that. Let me tell you this. I jumped as quickly as I can to the front. I'll take the first sip. They've said the same about the bread. Some people say it has to be one bread because we are one church and one body, and the bread has to be broken. In actual fact, I've been at a church where the guy that was doing the Lord's Supper, he would would actually break the bread because the Bible says Jesus broke the bread, right? And so you can't have unbroken bread. It needs to be broken in front of everybody. There's been debates about... Um, you know, when do you pray? Or which one do you take first? Is it the bread first and then the wine? Was the wine first and then the bread? What do you say? I say bread first, so you can, you can take the, the crumbs down with the juice, right? And so there's all these debates, Ben. And when do you pray? Do you pray before the bread and before the wine? Or do you pray before both? Like what's happening at this church? Uh, the church we were at in Durban, there were no Lord's Supper table. There were little Lord's Supper tables at the back. And when it's Lord's Supper time, you go and you fetch your own Lord's Supper. And you sit down and you have your time of reflection and you pray. And, but this is these debates and issues have... Oh, and here's another big one I forgot about. Is, should it be alcoholic wine or should it be grape juice? Oh, there's a big division about that. Now, that's, all of this is what I call... And you guys know by now, I like making up my own words. I'm going to ma- write the dictionary one day. It's called gnatism. You know what I'm talking about. Matthew 23, 24. You strain out a gnat or a gnat, but you swallow a camel. In other words, Jesus is pointing out and saying, you focus on all these issues that are really minor issues, and you're missing the big picture. And I'm hoping to do that this morning. I'm hoping to to help us, and, and I've really been grappling with it this week. Even though I've been a Christian for so many years and I've read all of these verses that deals with the Lord's table so many times, I'm still coming to to grips really with what am I supposed to be feeling and thinking when I partake of it? You just did it. You just did it. Do you ever sit and wonder like, is this meaningful to me? What am I doing right now? You know, what's this going to taste like? Is this just a formality? Take a thing and... And just do it. Is this just like a Sunday thing? Is there real value in it? And are we supposed to be doing it like this? Or the whole time? And so I've been grappling with that this week. Just reading through the verses again. Not a deeply theological lesson coming. But trying to understand what is the real meaning. In the first century, the Lord's Supper was really attached to what they call a love feast. It wasn't just a thing of a dip and sip. It was really around a meal. And, pe- and around people in, in, in a very um, festive atmosphere. And what I thought about this week was this. Uh, I know some of you watch Facebook, and you've, you've seen I've put some f- posts on about the Springbok rugby team that won the World Cup. And a lot of people are trying to understand why is it that these South Africans are going so crazy about their team winning the World Rugby World Cup. And part and parcel of it is is that in 1995... 1995, um, it was sort of the transitioning point for the country of South Africa. Now, you will hear all over the news and uh, uh, what's happening in Israel, you'll hear the word apartheid, apartheid. You guys have heard that word before? That's an Afrikaans word. Most people in the world don't understand that. That's the language I speak. Apartheid means be separate, separate from people, separate black people from white people. That's what South Africa is known as. So what happened when Nelson Mandela, those of you who do know who he is, when he got released from prison, South Africa had their first democratic election. In other words, the black people were allowed to vote as well. And boom, they voted in their black president, and the country was taken over by the black people, and the white people um, were, you know, basically uh, lost rulership. So that was the end of apartheid. But this was such a... And the reason why Nelson Mandela is so um, famous is because he could have turned around and really just pushed all the white people out of the country, but he didn't do that. And one of the key things that brought white and black together is that Nelson Mandela went to the first Rugby World Cup that South Africa was allowed to play in. Because before that, South Africa was not allowed to play in the Rugby World Cup. Why? Because they were oppressing black people. So the first Rugby World Cup that South Africa was allowed to play in was in South Africa, and Nelson Mandela came to the games Here's a black guy coming to a white man's sport, and he united black and white through that sport. And South Africa won the Rugby World Cup that year, 1995, the first time ever. So yesterday, South Africa won the World Cup again. And the people in South Africa are broken down, they are poor, there's half of the day no electricity, people feel there's no future. That's why I'm here, because the country is in a mess, and all the people of South Africa, they see one thing that gives them hope and happiness. It's just a simple rugby game. It makes them happy. And so I've been checking—I've been watching over Facebook South Africans in Oregon. Do you know how little South Africans they are? Last week, I went to go watch with one South African I could find. who lives in Albany to a, um, a factory in, in Lebanon. And we watched in the conference room together. Here's the two of us standing there singing the anthem. It was awkward. But in any case, we did it. But there's this this thing, where can we find South Africans because we have this in common, right? And so in Portland, there's a group that got together and watched the, the, the World Cup final, just a bunch of South Africans. And they eat the same food, and they talk the same language, and they have this rugby in common, and they have this meal together, and they look forward to being with each other. And I was thinking, that's it. That's the Lord's table. Here you have in the first century, you've got a bunch of Christians, they're surrounded by pagans, people who believe in different things, you've got Jews believing in different things, they're persecuted by Jews and Gentiles and pagans, and once a week, the people who believe in the same thing, the same Jesus, whose sins have been forgiven, they get together and they have a meal. I think that's the best way that I can describe this. This is why I think the Lord's Supper has become so watered down for us where we live in the West. Because everybody around every corner seems to be a Christian. But what if you lived in a world? What if you lived in a town where there's 5,000 people and only 10 of them are Christians? How would that change the Lord's Supper for you? When you say, hey guys, we believe in Jesus, let's get together once a week. And let's take a meal together, let's eat together. Isn't it interesting that when you haven't seen a friend for a long time and you get together, what do you do? You eat Everything in the Bible is always surrounded a meal. I know it's been reduced to a little cup and a sip. I don't think that's ideal, but that's how it's developed. We've got to deal with that. But I don't want us to to, to miss what it was really always about. So what I'm going to do this morning is, um, use the verses. If you want to go read them in your own time, I'm not going to do that. I might just pop into some verses here and there. Um, But if you want to go check them out, you're welcome to do that. All I've done is read these verses, and I came up with nine truths of the Lord's table that I think we need to um, just remember as we go on. And and many of these you would know, and I'll just make some comments. And I know what it's like. Like when you sit and the guy says, here's a nine-point sermon. It's like, oh, let's see how long the first point is. He spoke for five minutes, so multiply that by nine. Forty-five-minute sermon, here we come. Get comfortable, time to sleep. Guarantee you, this morning won't be one of those. I won't won't do that to you. So, let's start off with the first point I'd like to make. The Lord's Supper flows out of the Jewish Passover. It flows out of the Jewish Passover. There are five meals in the Bible that I want you to remember from this morning. Five meals, five key meals. Three of them were once-off meals, and two of them were perpetual meals. So the one, the first meal in the Bible, who'd like to guess? The first meal we read about in the Bible. (laughs) Yes, Adam and Eve. The first meal was an illegal meal. You were not to eat of whatever. It's not an apple, brother. You need to test your scriptures. Okay, I'm watching. No, I'm just joking. So they ate the fruit of the tree. That was Adam and Eve, the forbidden fruit. That was the first meal. That first meal introduced sin into the world. The second meal was not a forbidden meal, but a commanded meal. And that's what we find in Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites are in Egypt, right? And God's going to save them from Egypt. And it's the last plague, the plague of the firstborn. And God says to Moses, tell these people to go get a lamb, all right? Take care of it from the 10th to the 14th day of the month. And then at twilight, you slaughter it and you eat it. And he must cook it a certain way. You can go check that out. Exodus chapter 12. And then he says to them, I've got actually the verse for us up here. Exodus twelve fourteen. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. It's a lasting ordinance. So here we have the second meal. God says, you're going to have this on this night, but then you're going to have it for years to come. And to this day, The Jews still have this meal. A few thousand years later, Jesus in Matthew, sorry, that's Matthew 26, not 27, verse 17 to 18. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? It's the same thing from Exodus chapter 12. Jesus is doing it, right? He replied, going to the city to a certain man and tell them, tell him, The teacher says, my appointed time is near, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So, are you with me? First meal, Adam and Eve. Second meal, Passover meal. And that was perpetually continued through the Jews, even still today, which I don't believe is as significant as it was up to the point of Jesus. You'll hear why now. And Jesus himself had that meal and prepared that meal. There's a key word in here that I want to point out. Celebrate. Celebrate. The Passover was a celebration. Why does Jesus call it here a celebration? To celebrate what He had done for them. Remember they had to take the lamb, take the blood, paint it on their door frames. And God would come throughout Egypt and kill, pass over every house that has this blood on. And the houses that don't have the blood of the lamb their firstborn would be killed and inclusive of the animals, so the children and the animals. And so when the text says celebrate, I think it's this. We celebrate the fact that God passes over our house. When they later on were in Canaan, they were celebrating the fact that they were saved from the destruction in Egypt. When they moved into their homes and their lands, can you imagine how they felt about those lambs? And that for me is the sad thing. Have you seen a lamb? It's like this cutest little fluffy little thing. Yeah, you know. And imagine you had to kill that animal. And then you take its blood and you paint your door frame with it. How thankful are you for that lamb? What if you didn't have a lamb? All right. So they are celebrating the fact that they are saved from dark Egypt. That they are going to receive their own land. And so this first Passover meal, where did it happen? It happened basically, theoretically, between Egypt and Canaan. We are leaving Egypt and we are on our way to Canaan. We are leaving darkness and slavery and we are on our way to freedom and the land flowing with milk and honey. And this brings us to the third meal. The third meal is this text that we read about in Matthew chapter 26. That is the last meal supper. So Jesus is celebrating the Passover in His time, in His last week of life. In His last week of life, He's celebrating the Passover like the Jews did, and we call that the last supper. That's the third one. It was a once-off supper. It was a unique supper, but at that last supper, He institutes the fourth type of meal, which is what we call the Lord's Supper. So now we have quickly covered like four meals that we read about in the Bible. And what once again is interesting for me and myself and Jason, I didn't actually tell Jason this morning because I was waiting for the sermon to tell him. But what's interesting for me is when you go read Matthew chapter 26 and you ask the question, what was the atmosphere like in that house? They were in the upper room. What do you think it was like? Do you think it was like a church service like this morning? People were sitting in pews. What do you think it smelled like? Well, we know that that they had washed their feet before they came. That was the tradition. The text says that Jesus was reclining at the table. He was not sitting like the Pope at the table. He was reclining at the table. We see at the end of that Section of text that they sung a hymn together. You know what I can imagine in my own mind? Talk about everyday life. The Last Supper. The first time the Lord's Supper was taken. I can imagine there's a great atmosphere. I think Jesus is enjoying His disciples. Why? Because He loves them. He's been with them for three years. He's about to die for them. He's happy to be with them. He's happy... That he is dying for the for, for the sins of the world, and his blood's gonna flow for the sins of the world. And so he's relaxed with his disciples. He's comfortable, it's a meal. What matters there is not posture, what matters is love, what matters is connection with the person sitting next to you. That's what the first Lord's Supper was like. More to come on that in a in a few moments. So they relaxed, they enjoyed each other. It was a feast, it was a celebration, it was a time of worship. And I think that there was good food, and I think it was all mixed with fellowship. You know, those wonderful meals with families. That's the concept of the Last Supper. Number two, very simple, we know this. The bread represents the body of Jesus. Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Now, I've got to be honest with you. What do you think when you hear that? It's, it, I mean, we read this so often, but, but it's, it's a bit strange for somebody to tell you, listen, eat this piece of bread. It's my body. It seems cannibalistic. That's why some people left Jesus when he made statements like that. But what does it really mean? What is Jesus saying? And I'm just going to give a shot at it because maybe in, in a year's time I'll have a, a deeper perspective. But I think there's two perspectives on this. Number one, Jesus uh, is, is saying, I am the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb of the Passover was a foreshadow of what Jesus came to be. I just explained to you the story from Exodus chapter 12. So when Jesus says, listen... You've got to eat of me. He's saying you've got to eat of the lamb. That's theological. The Passover lamb had to be slaughtered every year, right? And Jesus, until Jesus came, and now Jesus was being slaughtered for the the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus says, eat me, he's simply trying to point them to the lamb. Like you ate the lamb, I am the lamb that forgives the sins of the world. So when you eat this bread, it's symbolic of me, and it indicates that God's wrath will pass over you too. So that's, that's one instance that I think makes sense of it. But there's a second instance, a, a practical reason, perseverance for the journey, and l- allow me to explain that. I believe that if we read a text like this, for example, this is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, when the... Um, when God gives the instructions to Moses as to how they were supposed to eat the lamb. He says to him, this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So when I read that, I think to myself, why would they have their cloaks tucked in and the sandals on, your feet, on their feet and their staffs in their hand? And if you go read the story, what happens after this? God comes through Egypt, he kills the firstborn, and what what does Pharaoh say immediately? Take your people and go. They are going to go on a long journey, ladies and gentlemen. They left Egypt that night, and they had to be ready. Sandals on, staff in hand, cloak tucked in, you're going on a journey. So the Passover lamb wasn't just a thing about the blood, it wasn't just a thing about eating something quickly, God was saying, eat you're going to go on a long journey. There's a practical implication. I researched briefly this morning, and sorry for all of you guys, because I, I, I really think that you, you know, many of you need counseling. You know, I saw, I saw a, a, a sticker on a car once in Lebanon. It said um, 50,000 coyotes can't be wrong. Eat lamb. I come to America, and nobody eats lamb. It's incredible. I researched this morning just the tremendous value. Sorry, Misty. Love you lots. I was reading this morning just about all the ingredients that's in lamb and its fatty content and the amount of good nourishing um, aspects that it has. God was nourishing the Israelites through lamb for the journey that lies ahead. So when I come and I eat of the lamb... I believe there's tremendous value for me spiritually, not physically, spiritually, as we're going to this journey, because we're all leaving Egypt, a life of sin and darkness, and we are on our way to Canaan, and life is hard. It's tough. It's tough dealing with your sin. It's tough dealing with difficult people. It's tough worrying about the future. It's tough being a disciple of Christ. It's a rugged journey. And every week when we came... When we come here and we come in contact with the Lamb of God, we are reminded Jesus conquered in his flesh. Jesus suffered on a cross. Jesus had a mission. So I'm reminded during the Lord's Supper of the Lamb of God. And that gives me courage and encouragement and strength to leave from here and continue with the battle. Continue on the journey trying to get to Canaan. That's where we're going. The land flowing with milk and honey. So there's tremendous value in the Lord's Supper. Not only reminding us what God had done for us through the Passover lamb, paying for our sins. But coming and thinking about Christ, what he did on the cross, gives us courage to move forward as well. As we struggle with our bodies, with this life, with everything that's going on here. And just being reminded, hey, the lamb of God. Is giving me perseverance because he endured the cross. I can endure my cross too. So that's what I've got to say about the bread. But there's a number three as well. The wine represents the blood of Jesus. The, past, uh, um, the text, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. Here it is, Matthew 26, 27. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many For the forgiveness of sins. It was the blood that separated the Egyptians from the Israelites. It's the blood that separated the pagans from the saints. It's the blood that separates the Christian from the non-Christian. The blood is, is, is the dividing line between the saved and the condemned. Without the blood, the wrath of God will enter your house and bring destruction. This is why the Lord's Supper... It's meant only for those who have been baptized because it is at baptism that you make contact with the blood of Christ. You're going to a covenant with him and God pays for your sins. Every time you partake of the wine, you're celebrating that you are safe from, saved from slavery, that you are safe from hell, that you have eternal life, that God is not angry with you. If we can just take that one thought with us today, if that's the only thing we can remember, next time you partake of the Lord's Supper, just remind yourself, God is not angry at me. He's forgiven me. His wrath is coming. The the angel of destruction is coming, but he's going to pass over my house because the blood is on the doors. The Lamb of God has paid for your sin. So God doesn't count your sins against you. You have the forgiveness of sins. There's a, a fourth fact It is a physical practice Jesus commanded us to do in remembrance of him. It's a physical thing. And there's a lot of things that God asks us to do, right? Like, you know, love your neighbors, yourself, and be patient, and be kind, and and hope. Those are all abstract inner things. This is the physical thing that God tells us to do. And he commands us to do it, by the way, so so we don't debate this. Um, I was trying to think. Let's just read the text. We go to the Corinthians text, 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me, the real reason why Jesus instituted this meal, this perpetual meal, is just for this reason. Just remember, remember me. Let me give you, a, and I've shared it with some of you. Some of you have not heard this before, but I'm going to share it again with everybody because as I sat this week and I tried to make this applicable to me and understand what this was about, this story came to my mind. That is a lair. Do you understand what that word means? No. Um, these are wagons put in that shape. That's a place in South Africa. It's called um, the Battle of Blood River. There's such a big battle that happened there that there was just blood all around this place. And there's a river flowing on the other side and there were just bodies in there. The Fuatreka people, which is my people, Afrikaans people, they came from the southern tip of Africa and they moved a little bit upwards, northwards, and eastwards into the country. And then they came into Zulu territory. And they came with these wagons. That's a different world. I mean, I, I think it's like maybe, I'm not sure about the history, but they, they talk about the Oregon Trail, maybe something like that. You know, but when they arrived there, they came across thousands upon thousands of Zulus tribes. And the king was Dungan. And they were negotiating with him for, for land. And a very famous guy by the name of Petritif, he went and he negotiated with the king and they agreed to, to offer them a piece of land and they could, have, they, they could sort of settle there. And, and they did that. But when they went to go sign the documents, Dungan just killed him in his, in his camp, right in front of him Dungan, the king of the Zulus. He had, he, his, the king that ruled after him was Shaka Zulu, if you've ever heard of Shaka Zulu. So Dungon was the one before him. And then these people received the news. Somebody on horseback came and told them. And they were just, a, they were just bunches of families a distance away and said to them, hey, they just killed Petritif. Okay? And they've mobilized the whole army, and they're on their way here. There are about 400 people with their wagons. 20,000 Zulus were on their way. 20,000 Zulus versus um, 400 Afrikaners. So what they did is they pulled their wagons in this way and they went to the middle. They had somebody there that on each corner, they had a cannon. The Zulus just had, you know, um, spears and stuff, but they had guns. And they got together and they said it was the 16th of December. They prayed and then they said to God, they committed to God, those all 500 people. They committed to God and they said, God, we will commemorate the 16th of December for the rest of our life. We will never forget you and what you've done for us on this day if you save us from the Zulus. They the, 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 the men were shooting, the wives were, were loading the, um, the muzzle loaders, and they were, it got dark. And something very unique happened. If you look, this is a close up image. This is, by the way, a place you can go visit if you go to South Africa today. You see that over there? It's a lantern. And you can see it sort of over there. I don't know if anybody can see there. There's a lantern there as well. There had these lanterns that came from, the, um, fr- from these wagons. And they lit them at night. Because they didn't know when the Zulus were going to come. And the Zulus were, were known to to form their, uh, to make their formations in the shape of a bull head. So you have the, the horns that come out like this. And so they would go around the camp and hit it from the front and so these guys were basically going to be attacked from all sides and they heard basically nothing but 20,000 Zulus were coming upon them but a mist came over this this area over this valley and they had the lanterns hanging out like this and the battle started and they totally annihilated the Zulus not one Afrikaner died but there was just Zulus everywhere later on They asked the Zulus, what happened? How is it possible that 20,000 Zulus cannot penetrate a small group of 400 people? And what they said was this. The battle obviously started fierce and and, and whatever, and they were all ready to go. But when they they started realizing the people are dying, and, and they started wondering what's going on, and why is it that they can't make advancement, they thought that those lanterns shining in the mist were the spirits of their ancestors. And that these people are being protected by some f- spiritual forces. And that's how they won the battle. That's how the story goes. So what the Africana people did was they built that monument. It's in Pretoria, South Africa. It's called the Furtrecker Monument. And right in the middle of it, they have once a year on the 16th of December, the sun shines straight through the top. And on that platform at the bottom there, they have a Bible open. And every year to this date, the 16th of December, the Afrikaner people remember what God had done for them. Now, Jesus, when He says, I'm going to die for Christians on the cross, and I'm going to give my life for them. He says, I want you to remember me, not by building a monument. He says, remember me, listen carefully, by having a meal just just have a meal with my people. Don't ever forget. And we do that every week. It's simple. Isn't God incredible? He's not like, "Oh yeah, I'll just build an empty statue." That's what the Greeks did. When great people ruled and they wanted to be remembered, they made statues of them. That's what the king of Babylon did. Jesus is like, "No. I live in people's hearts, and I want you to remember what I've done for you with others. And doesn't that open the door a little bit about evaluating where are we with each other? We'll talk more about that. Here's another point, number five. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation. 1 Corinthians 11:26. 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When I eat the bread and drink the cup, I'm actually preaching The death of Jesus. When we eat and drink, we are without words. Preaching that Jesus died. When you take that bread and eat it and drink the wine, you're preaching that Jesus was beaten and whipped. That he wore a crown of thorns. That he was mocked, nailed to a cross, pierced in his side. That he was cursed on a tree and that he bled out through his side. So we are essentially... Even though we're just sipping something and eating something, we are preaching Christ and Him crucified when we do that. And here's the thing. We will do this until Jesus comes back. Number six. The Lord's Supper is a time for judgment. Let's go to the Corinthians quickly and read what they say. What Paul says to them. First Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Then I'm skipping a verse. I'll tell you why in a moment. And then we go on to verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So there's a word that pops up there if you drink the, word, the Lord's Supper in, a, in, a, in an unworthy way. Did you pick that up? I think a better translation for that word is irreverently. For most of my life, this passage has been explained this way that you have to make yourself worthy to participate in the Lord's Supper. Let's test that quickly. Who here feels they are worthy to partake of the Lord's supper? Nobody? Nobody's worthy. How could you be ever be worthy? We're all unworthy. You can't make yourself worthy of the gospel. So the more accurate word is reverence. So how do you make sure you have the correct reverence? The text says that you have to discern the Lord's body. That's the way. In other words, make sure you respect and understand the meaning and the, 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 um, the importance of what it, and what it signifies, the emblems. In simple terms, terms, if you're just eating the bread and drinking the wine with no conscious awareness of what it is about, if it's just a sip and a dip, you are in danger. I think that was the problem with the Corinthians because they took it the extreme. So they had a meal, a real feast. They got drunk, they were gluttonous, and they didn't discern the Lord's body and realize hey, this isn't just a meal, this is about Christ. So what do you do? When it's Lord's supper time, you examine yourself. The Greek word there is dokimatso, which means to document yourself. Document yourself. Check yourself. Judge yourself. What am I thinking? Where is my heart at? This is about Jesus and what he has done for me. It's such a cool time to reevaluate your relationship with him. And if you're honest with yourself, it will be a tremendous blessing to you. Let's go on to number seven. Using the Lord's Supper irreverently could cause illness and death. So many of you are like, what? I can partake of the Lord's Supper and get sick and die. Next week the church is empty. Not going to take all that stuff anymore. But we need to remember the context. These Corinthian Christians had a deeper problem than just how they did the Lord's Supper. And I want this to be clear. People in the Corinthian church died because of their use of the Lord's Supper they got sick. Paul makes it pretty clear. Those of you who don't understand. Um, uh, oh, I haven't put up the verse yet. Sorry about that. First Corinthians 11, 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. The concept of falling asleep means death, very simply. Okay, so it's not just about how you use the emblem, but it's It's an indication of a deeper problem. The mess they made of the Lord's Supper was a symptom of that problem. It's a disconnection with Christ. They turned the Lord's Supper into a pagan party, and through the process, totally disrespected and ignored what it was all about, that it was about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They claimed to be Christians, but behaved like pagans. They spoke of Jesus from their lips, but in their hearts, Jesus was missing. As one man said, their mouths were full of bread, But their hearts had no faith. And they did not judge themselves. And therefore the text says God judged them. So, if you give your life to Christ, and Jesus pays for your sin, and then you go and live as if Jesus doesn't exist, and you pop into church now and then, you partake of the Lord's Supper, proclaim His death, and then go back to your life of sin, you're bringing judgment on yourself. And you're living as if Christ did not die for you. So it's more than just the supper. It's the way that you live your life. And you will get sick. And you will die. So don't make small of the Lord's Supper. And don't complain about it. Honor it. And have respect for the one who is all about. Because God takes it serious. And then number eight is extremely important. If this clicker thing will ever work. There we go. The Lord's Supper is a communal meal. In chapter 11, 33 of 1 Corinthians, he says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. There are so many ways that we can divide ourselves this morning. We could split into groups very easily. For example, saying who likes fishing? I will not be in that group. Some of you will be. If we say who likes hunting. Some will say yes. Other people say no. You eat, like eating meat. Some will be in one group and uh, and some in another group. We say who's a Democrat. Oh, there will be one group. Who's a Republican? Oh, there will be one group. There's all kinds of ways that we can divide ourselves. Who likes beans? All of you, none of me. Easy to divide. We can find all kinds of things that we disagree about. But the Lord's Supper brings everyone together. It is the moment where we set aside our differences and we agree on the same thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's that one meal we have. And that's all that matters is that one thing that we can agree on. It's communal. We are showing the world we are one. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're not just thinking about the physical body of Christ on the cross but we are thinking about his body which is the church and we're thinking about his bride which is the church so on that note I found something interesting this week I heard about a very popular and and very well trained very a great great preacher pastor pastor whatever he is a church in California massive church Every time they have Lord's Supper, they practice church discipline. That's interesting, right? You know, when Jesus says, if, you know, if your brother has sinned against you, go show him the fault between the two of you. If he doesn't listen to you, then take two or three. And if he still doesn't listen to them, then you take him in front of the church. And you expel him from the church if he doesn't want to listen. He does that at the Lord's table. So when they have Lord's Supper... Those who live in sin and refuse to change, they come, they're come, they called forward. I'd like to witness one of those events, wouldn't you? It will be crazy. But it is so powerful. It is so, so powerful. And some of us are thinking, well, whoa, whoa that, that's a bit crazy. Isn't the Lord's Supper supposed to be a, you, know, it's, it's, you just said it's a communal festival of love. And then you kick guys out of the church from it. How does that work? Well, if you go read the text, in Matthew chapter 26, the last supper, remember that third meal? That last supper was a very interesting story. It was a celebration. Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover, but you know what the mood was of that Passover? Sadness. Matthew 26, 22, they were very sad and began to say to him one after another surely you don't mean me lord you know what was going on right god jesus christ was expelling judas from this discipleship group at the lord's table and if you go read john john seems to tell us the moment that he gave him the bread the text says satan entered him and he left judas was expelled From the Christian community at the Lord's table. What does that teach us about the Lord's Supper? There's so much to say. I don't even know where to start. It tells us that we have to be right with one another too. We've got to reflect on our relationships with each other. That yes, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it should be every week like a test for us, man. Am I right with the people in this room? Is there somebody that needs to hear that they are living in sin? The Lord's Supper is supposed to make us more holy, more connected, more humbled. Because Jesus also washed his disciples' feet at that same table. The Lord's Supper is supposed to help us deeply reflect on one another. Because we're a community. We are one. We're supposed to be caring about each other. We're supposed to be caring that this flock never has sin in it. That harms it. So the Lord's Supper is is indeed a physical thing that we do. It's got tremendously deep meaning. I'm not saying next week at the Lord's Supper bring somebody to, to be rebuked, you know. I'm just saying it teaches us a very important principle. That we are holy people. And that is tested when we have the Lord's Supper together. Lastly, the Lord's Supper will finally be celebrated in heaven that's the fifth meal Matthew twenty six twenty nine. I tell you I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom so when Jesus had this last supper he was instituting the Lord's supper and he was telling us about a day in the future where we're gonna have a meal With God. And let me tell you this. I'm pretty confident of this. It's not going to be a dip and sip like we had this morning. It's going to be an incredible festivity. It's going to be a party. The book of Revelation talks about it in chapter 19 from verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. Like the roar of rushing waters. And like loud peals of thunder shouting. Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and Be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. So there's a, there's a serious party in heaven coming, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be incredible. And that's going to be our supper with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I was grappling with, what do I, what do I leave with you to help you remember some of the things that I said this morning? And, I, you know, maybe something stood out for you, but if I have to sort of choose one thing that we might be able to remember... I think at the Lord's table, at communion, if we can just remember these five meals, because they're all connected. They're all connected to communion with one another or with some theological truth. If you look at the first meal, Adam and Eve. Remember just the first meal was Adam and Eve, right? They sinned. So when you're sitting down, And it's time for you and and the Lord. And you're going to partake of these emblems. Think about your sin. Think about your communion with sin the past week. And then you move on to the second meal, the Passover. And then you think about that little lamb that was slaughtered. Then you think about that blood that was put on the door frame. And then you remind yourself that even though you've sinned, God's going to go over your house The wrath of God is going to pass you by. It's not going to enter your life. The wrath of God is going to skip you. And then you say, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to pay for my sin. And let that then move you to the third meal, which was this supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And let that point you towards Jesus. And then you focus on Jesus. And you imagine him sitting reclining with his disciples around the table. And imagine how he's washing their feet, he's reclining, they're singing a song together, and make that, help you understand who Jesus is. The real lamb that paid for your sin. And then you just enjoy that moment with Christ. And then you think about the church. You think about the people that sit around you, because that's the fourth meal. That's the meal that Jesus commanded us to, to have, to remember him. That Once a week thing that we do together. And then you think for a moment about the person sitting next to you. And the person sitting behind you. Your brother and your sister in Christ. And you know what? I would say that's even a great time to pray for them. Maybe we need a few minutes longer to do that. And then if you need to forgive in your heart, then you do that. And if God convicts you at that moment that maybe you need to say something, then you do that as well. Maybe not then, but afterwards. And then the last thing you think about is that fifth meal. You remind yourself, because this week goes, the week goes by like this, doesn't it? Well, for me it does. It goes by like this. And in the week we think about so many other things. We think about next week. We think about the new school year. We think about our medical appointments. And then you've got this one moment to just think about the meal coming in heaven for you. Where there will be fellowship with God. And all of this pain and struggle will be over. Like some of you are already thinking about Thanksgiving meal, right? Hands up. Who's already worked that out? Some of you already thought about Christmas meals, right? The shops are full of this stuff already. What about this one meal that we'll have in heaven together? So if you can remember the five meals while you have the Lord's Supper, I think it will be much more meaningful to you. Let's stand and we sing the closing song.